Hi everyone, it's Joaki Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. A podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm going to put out this kind of special episode where I will highlight my favorite picks from over 50 episodes that I released during 2021. So these are not specifically the ones that were the most listened to episodes, but these are the things that we talked about on the podcast that I still think about today from this year. So I hope you will enjoy these highlights. But before we go to them, here's a few words from our sponsors. Before we go on, I'd like to introduce today's sponsor, GameI. One of the biggest challenges when making a multiplayer game is what do you do if your game gets a sudden surge of players? What happens when a streamer picks up your game and you get a few thousand, even a few million new players? It all comes down to your servers. There are three major problems that can happen if you get more players than you can handle. First, there's an issue of lag. The game will feel slow for some people to play, making it an unfair game. Second, you can run out of servers completely, leading to long queue times and frustrated players. Third, there's the cost. Even if you use a cloud solution, the costs are going to skyrocket if you're using too many servers. That's where GameI comes in. They host your multiplayer games without a huge price tag, and they automatically spin up new sessions for you only when you need them. They do this by aggregating the world's best server infrastructure and making it all available through a simple API. By using GameMy, you can simply run your live ops knowing that they can spin up game sessions anywhere in the world and make sure that your players are always put in the best locations. You send them the information and GameMy will find you the best location. GameMy, bringing your players closer together. Check them out at GameMy.com. And don't forget to mention that Elite Game Developers sent you. Are you looking to promote your game with content creators? Maybe you've thought about it, but didn't have the time or budget to try it out. Now, with Matchmade Express campaigns, you can easily work with creators on sponsored YouTube videos for $500 per campaign. Matchmade scans a pool of 9.2 million creators to find you relevant fits. Your budget gets allocated to several creators and their content will go live in days instead of weeks. You don't need to worry about negotiating fees or handling the logistics of delivery. The result is authentic creative content that drives genuine engagement. Head on over to matchmade.tv to try it out. And don't forget to mention that Elite Game Developers sent you. In January, I spoke with Shanti Burgle, who is the founding partner at Transcend Fund. I asked Shanti how he picks gaming startups to invest in. I think recognizing that a startup in its early stage is fundamentally you know, kind of a, 
a learning organism um, that's trying to find you know, like something out about the market or a product or its audience, um, and then derive strategic advantage from that faster than other people and uh, yeah. get somewhere quickly. Um, and so if you don't believe in getting somewhere quickly, you don't believe in kind of that, you know, kind of uh, step function of, of act action resulting in a hockey stick, um, it might not be a good fit with venture. Um, so venture capitalists expect the hockey stick eventually. Uh, and so yeah. I think games, one of the great things about games today is that you can make an extremely profitable two-person game company um, with no need for outside financing at all. Um, and that's a great thing to do. You know, like I have friends who do that. You know, like they you know, create these little tiny companies. They, they kind of bootstrap themselves to a place where they have great cash flow <clears throat> and paying themselves more than they ever could if they worked for somebody else. And they have no need for, you know, kind of um, outside investors. Um, they're never going to, you know, kind of, you know, hit tens, hundreds, you know, kind of billions of dollars. Um, but the fit with venture is typically, you know, like I want to create something that's going to do something um, uh, eventually resulting in this kind of uh, hockey stick moment where the company grows considerably. And like, hopefully that happens in a time frame, like between you know, kind of three to seven years. In February, I had heard Chishu, the co-founder and CEO of Lucky Cat Games on the show. With Herchi, we talked about killing a game and why it can be so hard. What's your approach to, to killing a game or what, what does the team do? Um, yeah, for us, that's really simple. Uh, and I guess that that's the same for every hyper-casual publisher is that, you know, if you don't see the creative metric working, then, then you just uh, kill the project. Mm. Has it ever been like a, a tough decision where you didn't really like know? why it didn't work versus yeah. like that. I yeah. think this is, this is yeah. the thing that I see a lot of studios killing a project because they saw day one was like 28% for a game, which could have had better. And then the team is sort of like, Oh, it just had bad metrics. Now we're going to do this other game. And they didn't really like figure out why it had bad metrics. What are your thoughts yeah. there? Yeah. That, that's a really good mention there because I had the same discussion with my brother because he was also like, hey, but we, at, at a certain point, we were killing games a bit too fast. And he said, like, we're not even asking ourselves why. We're just killing them and just moving on to the next one. Well, what are we learning here? And uh, I, I, I do agree. Like, uh, But we also have been, in some cases, we, we've seen, you know, um, there's a game and then we start day one retention of 30% and then we keep iterating and then, for a couple of weeks even, and then it keeps on being 30%. You're doing so many AB tests and it just doesn't change, but somehow the creative is still working like crazy, right? It's like mm -hmm. so frustrating. And, 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 you know, it's like, oh, we are a studio. So for us, it should be easy to build a game, right? But yeah, like when do you kill a game is a very difficult, um, I think it's a very difficult decision because first of all, it's also important that uh, developers shouldn't be emotionally attached to a game. Also, uh, you know, as a founder or a producer or whatever, it's really important not to be too emotionally attached because then you can look at it more rationally. And also you should give yourself definitely a constraint, like uh, as you mentioned, like, uh, okay, 20%, uh, 
let's do two more rounds of iteration. Because also, I think, you know, your creativity will run out, right? Uh, I'm not sure how you experienced that before, but what we experience is that if we do like four iterations, at a certain point, your creativity runs out. And I'm pretty sure like, and there were some concepts which we've seen that, uh, which were sort of like copied or done by another hypercasual publisher and they made it successful and, and we didn't. But for me, I'm like, I'm fine with that because, you know, we didn't come up with that iteration and they thought of that sort of like iteration or feature that made it, you know, like maybe 10 times better than how we did it. It's 10 times more satisfying to play. And if you cannot come up with that idea, yeah, there's no point of, you know, bashing yourself or hitting yourself with the head. It's just, that's just how it is. Also last winter, I had a chat with Susanna Mesa-Graham, co-founder of Aldeon, an investment company from Stockholm, Sweden, that focuses on gaming and tech startups. With Susanna, we talked about what are the founder characteristics that she believes are signals for future success. There has to be an element of passion, at least in the founders, the founders that I work with are, they're not like, they're not founders that you could just take and put them in any startup and they would be able to do the job exactly the same. Like it's people who believe in something and that something is what they want to create and, and put out into the world. And I think that passion, rather than just, just in quotation marks, being the CEO of a startup is really important. And I do believe it's a criteria for success. And there are companies, startups that can just copy paste other um, ideas and be hugely successful. I'm not saying anything about that. I'm just saying that those are not the type of founders that I prefer to work with because I don't mm. think that's necessarily where I can add a lot of value either. Yeah. And yeah. that, that kind of leads us to, because we were talking a little bit about the niche. Mm-hmm. And I often say that I love the niche. I've spent, I spent 14 years in a company that made their niche hugely um, successful, but also very, yeah. very profitable. So I, I believe very strongly that there is not just impact to be gained by focusing on the niche, but also a profit. And so a lot of the times the founders that I work with are not necessarily going to be the biggest uh, fishes in a big pond. They might be like a big fish in a small pond, but I've seen what um, profit and what impact that can have. So that doesn't scare me. I mean, that actually a lot of the times will be the the number one reason why I invest is because they've found a niche that they believe very strongly that they can cater to. Um, and they're also able to very articulately show me why. And in a lot of ways, a lot of times in different ways than have been done before. And so mm. those type of investments might be hard to do if you're only evaluating things from the boardroom or in an Excel sheet, because a lot of the times they're unproven concepts. So you have to tap into some other things to be able to see where this is going to lead to. And I think my my past experience there has, has set me up a lot when it comes to being able to evaluate that. Last spring, I had a chat with Hakan Ulvan from Bigger Games 
With Hakan, we talked about why Turkey has seen so much success in gaming. The Zynga deal happened, or those two, or there were several Zynga deals that were happening in Turkey. Yeah. Do you think that immediately changed things? And how do you see kind of like the fundraising actually going through? There's a lot of appetite for, for Turkish startups, but is it like, has it changed? Did it change just like recently? Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, before Zynga deal, before the first Zynga deal in, in Turkey, uh, I was not that much aware of the gaming ecosystem in Turkey. The other startups, etc. I mean, I knew Grandma Soma, etc. But uh, that's it. I mean, I didn't know all these startups, etc. And there were there were not a lot of them, uh, or or I didn't know. Let's say, but uh, but I can say that things started to change. I think. Uh, before the deal, uh, before Zynga deal, I mean, there was already some other new gaming companies we started to see in this market, new startups, etc. And of course, the Zynga deal uh, and Zynga deals, let's say, also like you know, let's say, accelerated it, it very much because uh, one of the like in, in both sense it's accelerated. One, the all the investors and VCs started to see Turkey. Well, it's possible in Turkey there might be great companies, etc. They started to say. At the same time, at the same time, all these like talented people in Turkey and entrepreneurs, they started to see that well, there's actually uh, this gaming industry, and and it's possible to create some, uh, um, you know, something great in here. And you know, lots of talented people are working in management consultancy or this kind of like FMCG or banking or whatever, and they also have seen that. There might be great opportunities uh, in this, uh, and great, there might be great career paths as well in in gaming. Even, even people's families, I think, they started to think that there might be great career. Like normally, like your family might have some. I don't know how Finland is, uh, and I guess it's uh, not similar in, in this sense. But your family might have and some effect on your career choices in Turkey. I mean, uh, your or your. I mean, it doesn't have to be. Uh, family it, it can be your loved ones or whatever and even like people who are not in gaming they start to see that there might be something there so i think like this this change this change a lot in, in the market in march i talked with celia hodent who is a game user experience expert and former director of ux at epic games i come from this industry where Everything is live service games where you want to have people coming back for several years and you're building towards like long-term goals. Do you think the engageability area with self-determination theory as part of the motivation drivers, do you think about player goals as an area that you study or, or that you kind of like add into the games by looking at like all the autonomy relatedness and mm-hmm. uh, those aspects, what do you think? Yeah, so j- just for clarity, self-determination theory is uh, the theory about intrinsic motivation, saying that we need to satisfy our needs for competence, autonomy, relatedness. Yeah, so there's different things. When we talk about player goals, sometimes we talk about more personality and player styles. And this is where it's getting even more complicated because the stuff that we mentioned earlier, intrinsic motivation, this is common to all humans. It's common to whole humans that 
we need to feel competent, we need to feel autonomous, and we need to feel some sort of affiliation and relatedness with others. But then some people care more about, or some people are more completionist than others, and some people really are more social than others. And this is more in the realm of personality. Oftentimes when we talk about player goals, a lot of people refer to these play styles that are different. Mm-hmm. Some people are more competitive and more people are more cooperative. This is even more complex because we <laughs> we don't have a good framework for that. So I'm not sure which part of the question you were yeah, uh, trying I to think, go to, but it's, I think it's, it's typically, yeah. yeah. So we need, if you want to be sure, you go with SDT, self-determination theory, and, and you try to make sure like people can grow. And so, of course, mm. people are going to come back and they feel they can grow and they can get better at something. That's going to work pretty much for everyone, uh, depending on what they care about in terms of growth, of course. But then if you're talking about player styles, then it's a whole different story. (laughs) Yeah. I think you mentioned completionism. That's probably one of the big motivators in in free-to-play. It has been exploited so much by, you know, collect all of these and then collect them in the next star ranking and then again Mm -hmm. and again. And then beat all these levels and then beat them again with the, the, the better characters. And that drives long-term goal development really well for free-to-play games. Yeah, for some players, though. So all players, like, we all like to see ourselves progressing. So mm. uh, let's say if you see a skill tree, uh, you don't necessarily want to, not everyone wants to buy everything, but they, we all like to see ourselves progressing towards our goals that we've determined. But now you have people, they really want to complete everything. And this is not the case for everyone. And that's why that's the reason why I was saying, you know, if you just focus on that importance of progression and to see ourselves progressing towards uh, toward a goal and have some feedback on our growing competence, this is pretty much going to resonate for everyone. But now the completionism yeah. part of it is going to resonate to some people, but not others. But the completionist part it's always you know if you have i don't know if you need to fill 10 squares and you only have eight and then next time you have nine and this time you have 10 and it's still you know not only you've completed the whole quest but you also progress towards that goal so that's the reason why sometimes it's it's a mixed approach but yeah not everybody is is, is completionist you have some people have a stronger drive than others to to complete everything Later in the spring, I had Anat Sperling on the show. Anat is the co-founder and CEO of Toya, a Roblox game studio based out of Israel. With Anat, we talked about how she built up Toya Studio to be intentionally diverse. How intentional was that early on when you started building Toya and the team to have this diverse set of people in the room? For me, as a women's rights activist and a feminist, it's impossible not to have a diverse team. I've always had a diverse team. With Israel Women's Film Festival and also with Toya, I feel that the business opportunity is better addressed when you have a diverse team, by the way. Because you can really think about, okay, you have the studio. So who's sitting around the table in the studio And thinking about the end user, who would be the end user for you? Who would be the end user for me? 
I mostly imagine girls as the end user, but some yeah. of the team members would always imagine boys as the end user. And that's a fact. Now, when building for both, this is a perspective that would serve them equally because the discussion becomes, okay, this is my perspective on this. They would say, okay, but what if we add this? And I would say, okay, but we're missing this. And so then, you know, it's practically the evolution of creating a more equal realm, I would say. And for me, it's like on Roblox, I want to create an, an inclusive hit. This is what I'm in for, really. But in a unique and genuine way, not with like formulas. I'm not interested in formulas at all. I'm much more interested in experimenting and uh, assembling something that is new, that was not done before. The whole process there for Roblox when you're making games, can you talk about what Roblox and what the developers might not out there know about the audience and what kind of games have you seen that work on Roblox? So it's not just about having a diverse team, professionals and, and you know Roblox developers. It's also about having a feeling, the pulse of the community as you come to create a new experience. And we address it in, in a couple of uh, ways. One is we have a Discord channel with a lot, hundreds of more than probably a thousand uh, kids, girls and boys that are playing Roblox and are playtesting on a weekly base any feature, any character, anything we develop or even thinking about. So now, for instance, we're thinking about adding in the next update of our farming game, we would like to add pets. So going and talking to them about what do they think we need pets? What, how would they want to play with them? What would they do with them? Would they help them on the farm? Would they want to walk with them? Is it for vanity? Would they want to walk and you know, visit their farming neighbor? And so what is it exactly that would make it fun for them? Is it something they want and so forth? So our community manager would be, you know, talking to them while playing the game and there would be a lot contributed in the process. We do the same with another game we're developing now called Miraculous Ladybug based on the very popular TV series. So we also have a lot of kids who are, you know, playing Roblox, but also follow the series because like mm -hmm. fans. And so it's about, okay, how do you maintain what they love and follow in this series when it comes to a Roblox game? What is the must-have and what are the things that a game can bring that you do not have on the actual you know, TV series? And I feel that the community is the best place to ask and raise questions if you really want to hear the answers. So I always want to hear the answers because for me, young people always come up with the most exciting, raw, genuine answers. It's just about listening and wanting them to be involved in the process. And I always want that. So this is one thing we do. The other thing we do in the team is play together. We have a play together session time every week where everyone hops in from all over the world. And each time each member can, you know, offer this or that game that they came across. Some are just emerging, just starting. 
but they seem intriguing. And as Roblox keeps on evolving and changing all the time, then feeling the pulse of the community is also playing the games that the community creates. And so last week, for instance, Lewis came up with the idea to go and play a golf game on Roblox. And I was like, really? There's a golf game? Okay, let's yeah. go and try. And we couldn't stop. We opened the private server and we're like playing for, I don't know, more than an hour. We just couldn't stop. It was funny. And we're talking as we were playing and a lot of comments and then feedback and thinking about mechanics in our own games and how we should implement this or that and why this is so smart and how they tackle that. And we do it on a regular base, not just as a mean of learning, but also working remotely. This is something that helps us feel like we are part of the same thing working for the same goal. In May, I spoke with Karolina Corpo, founder and CEO of Tent Muse. Karolina's background was from game design, where she had been working at Colossal Order on the hit game City Skyline. I wanted to know from Karolina's perspective, what were the big takeaways from that game project? Let's go back a bit to the city skyline. What, what were sort of like the big takeaways from that like big success as a game mm. that you still think about today? Um, well, I'd say that one of the things that to me is the best thing in Skylines and that can be replicated and that I am uh, interested in is that the whole game system um, was designed around the, the kind of tutorial system. And uh, like even with the mobile games, the tutorial is something that is very crucial to keeping the players. And um, this is difficult to explain. Kind of my thinking is that um, because I, I have been doing the academic game, game research and studies too, so that games are actually just big learning machines. A person yeah. playing a game is learning how to play that game at the same time as they are playing. And the kind of dopamine uh, hit that we get from playing is when we uh, succeed in something, we learn something, we, we get this uh, flash of insight like, oh, this is how it's done. Mm. So I, I believe that many more games could be built around the whole kind of tutorial system in the sense that the tutorials should not be separate from the rest of the game um, some players need a bit more um, hand-holding in the beginning and that is of course fine but there are also solutions for this so in skylines the whole system is that the game game system tries to understand if the player knows what they are doing so that the very experienced player who has played all the sim cities who knows all the ropes has has no challenges anywhere they rarely see the tutorial messages at all because the system kind of notices that, yeah, they have zone buildings. Those buildings have electricity and water. Everything is fine. That's good. And even then, if, if this player would just simply forget something or otherwise just miss a thing or there's something new that they don't understand, then they see only one kind of pop-up saying like, hey, maybe you should try this one. And that is that feels very good to the players. They, they generally want to feel confident and they want to feel that they know how this works. And these players, these experienced players are unlikely to choose if they're asked, like, would you like to have a tutorial? They will say no. But even if they still have trouble playing the game, um, they 
they say that the game is bad <laughs> because yeah. that's how people just play these games. If if yeah. they are not good at it, they they say the game is bad. And in a sense, that is actually correct because it is the game's job and our job as game developers to make sure that the people know how to use the game so that they can have fun. Mm-hmm. But what this did in Skylines is also that if someone is very inexperienced, uh, they can actually take as long as they ever want to zone the first buildings to get the water pipes there. And the game, you, you will not go into game over. The game will just try to teach you again and again how to do this thing. And only when when the system notices that the player seems to have mastered this, then something new unlocks. Uh, and this is kind of built throughout the whole game because this just is the way people want to play, especially the sandbox games. They want to learn, they want to try different things, they want to see how this thing works and get a feeling of the living world inside of the game. In June, I talked with John Hook, who is an angel investor and vice president of publishing at Boombit. With John, we talked about the success in gaming and what it really takes. Hey, a question about like teams, since you're now talking to these startup founders and looking at like the characteristics of, of a team that was able to go from unprofitable to hugely profitable in mobile games. Do you see any characteristics there with the teams? Yeah, I mean, of, of course, I think you you have a, you know, I, I, I don't have any personal bias between, you know, single founder, co-founder, prior experience at live product, or this is their first time. I think some common themes I see is, is, is just that hunger, right? Not blind hunger, but just that hunger to learn, right? If they don't know something, they'll admit it and they'll just go and read up and watch every video on it and network and learn about that, right? They just have this insatiable appetite to learn and a very open mind that starts mm-hmm. with, this is what I know, this is what I don't know. I'm gonna try and learn everything about it or hire the best people in areas that I'm not good at. And I think that is such an important trait, whether you work in mobile games or anything, but I, I'd say that is that is definitely key. I, I think having a very clear, um, uh, roadmap for your your title, your game, whatever it is, you know, if you're building a, a technology business, but having a super clear roadmap with milestones that you are more than prepared to hold yourself and your, your team accountable, right? So that you don't spend months building something where if you'd actually run some early tests and, you know, so basically it's not an ego project. I think that is, is super key, right? Um, and every time when I look at some successful companies, usually the, the first game is not, it's not the right game. But what they've done early on is they recognize that, they kill it really quick, quickly, they learn from it and on to the next title. And I think that is definitely a recurring trait I see. Um, the ability to just follow data, kill poor content really early on and move on to the next one. Um, I think the other thing that I, I see more from an investment perspective is they've really thought long and hard about what and who they want involved with their business. So they can steer the funding conversation map to their own goals right i'm not saying it it always pans out beautifully like that and sometimes of course it's opportunistic you get someone knocking on your door that you would never have considered but they have a very clear vision of of, of really what you know the, the different sort of funding levels valuations but really outside of the money what it is that they need to bring in where they think they're weak that will then help them get to that next level um 
and I really like and respect that. You know, when people decline, it's it's you know, of course, maybe it's some disagreement on the valuation, but it's always interesting when they decline because you know, actually, I've. I've already got an investor with a very similar profile that's going to help me there. I'm actually looking for someone that, outside of the money, has got real expertise in like the legal space. That's what I really need. Um, and and I, I love getting those kind of rejections. And it sounds a weird thing as an angel investor to be rejected, but it, it, it does happen and I admire that. But what I then mm. do is I follow that founder very closely for however long because they have a trait that I I, uh, I, I deeply admire. Um, yeah. and, and you've covered the other one, right? Um, Link, link to knowing when to quit is is learning and then bouncing back just because you fail once doesn't mean you're going to fail again it's just understanding why you failed and then being able to tell me that and applying it second time around um and again the number of stories you'll read about people that failed the first time around or not necessarily fail but it didn't scale the way they wanted and you know maybe they left or you know sold their shares to the, the co-founder and now they've just gone and built a monster company it's just because again they have that humility to understand where they where they went wrong and, and and learn from it so i i think a combination of all of those things you know and, and no surprises when you meet these successful ceos they they have a, a lot of those characters in august i had a chat with klaus kersting who is the founder and ceo of phoenix games klaus was an early investor in supercell so i wanted to hear what klaus thinks about the concept of the least powerful ceo I'm su super fascinated about the the sort of like empowering the teams and giving independent teams the 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 role of uh, guiding sort of like where the games are going. Uh, very much a bottom down down approach, bottoms up approach. Like um, and the CEO, like Ilka says, the being the he he being the least powerful CEO. And like, do you see this? Supercell style of uh, game making, actually working for other companies as well. Um, so first of all, the least powerful CEO thing is a very very nice PR line. Let's let's translate it into practicalities, right? Sure. Um, what he is referring to is he is not interfering with team decisions consciously, and that is a philosophy of how he runs his company. Of course, he is a powerful CEO because he is the CEO of Supercell. Who is not powerful if he isn't, right? It, it, it just, he is a powerful CEO. He chooses not to use his power to change decision-making processes. And that is a philosophical decision and not a description of a state. Um, that being said, um, I think it's a very, very powerful work way of, of, of approaching things if and here comes a lot of things. It is very strongly dependent on the character strength as well as the skill level of every team member. Because if you have an amazing team that is all, where every team member in itself is basically an entrepreneur and is looking at the world as an entrepreneur, um, then it is totally possible to do that. And looking back at the early days of Supercell and looking at the teams back then, that was how the teams were put together. All of these people have been around the block. They have been doing it for quite a while. And they have been doing it in a very egalitarian 
environment where they were used to and trained to work and think like that. Um, replicating that with a new team, with a growing company is really, really challenging. And looking at Supercell and how they have been doing over the last years, there has not been a really great game for quite a while. And I guess there is a reason for that. I'm obviously not on the inside and can't talk about Supercell in an educated way. Just what I'm observing is that the philosophy of pushing all the decision making down to the individual team depends strongly on the skill sets and philosophy of each individual team member. And if one of them is not that, it's already broken. Um, in principle, I fully believe in this method and uh, that is exactly why we approach it like that in Phoenix, right? Um, decision making is with the entrepreneurs. It is with the founders who have proven that they can be successful in this super competitive market space. There can't be that much wrong with putting decisions their way and helping them making better decisions even by sparring with them about it and supplying them with more resources to do so. Um, but um, it is a tough approach that is just so much harder to manage and so much harder to give direction, which um, is a wanted side effect, but poses its own unique challenges. In December, I talked with Ville Heijari, the co-founder of Original Games. Ville has an extensive background in gaming, so I wanted to hear how he's thinking about building up his new studio, Original Games. Before like Original Games, you spent a few years now again at Rovio doing that comeback <laughs> into Rovio yeah, and yeah. seeing through the IPO that Rovio did. And with all your experiences from Rovio and seeing other big companies, how do you want to build up Original Games differently and maybe in some similar ways as well. I, I think if I if I think about big big companies, I what I've always witnessed has been like quite bad silos. I, I think in free to play game, the biggest mistake you can do is to have like someone take care of the product and sort of ship the product and then move it on the production line to marketing or user acquisition and then have them acquire users. And then mm. if things don't work out, you're going to have like two, two teams pointing fingers at each other where it's the product's fault or it's the marketing's fault or so forth. So I, I, that's, a, that's an example of, of like how, how it could, how, what could be like a worst possible rift. Of course, you can have like silos in tech, you can have silos in anything, but that's definitely something that I'd, I'd, uh, I'd personally want to avoid that there's like a ample communication. There's a there's a very sort of elemental collaboration with all the all the contributors. So everybody understands what's needed from the product for UA to to sort of work and pay off and and vice versa. And and then obviously like the the sort of distractions, avoiding like shiny object opportunities and and really focusing on the mission, like that's something that's like personally been a favorite of mine. That's like, if not every week, at least every month or every quarter, there's like a new technology or a new service provider or new something to investigate, new gaming genre. <laughs> but yep. very easy to get excited about. Very very essential to keep keep resources pointed at where they're 
where they're making the making the biggest impact. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask actually about the culture, but I, I think we dive quite deep there already. But I, I still want to ask maybe about the teams. How do you structure people now in merge in now that it's scaling? Like how much are you putting in new features versus live? Like what does that look like now? What we try to accomplish now is the sort of modular growth that we have the core game, the the sort of core content, we have the events, we're developing the social. So we try to build these as like things that we can add add resources to and sort of fire on, on parallel lines rather than have like everything in sequence. I mean, obviously, like probably as much as, as anyone like like developing games is that talent can be the choke point that can you get the right people in. And I, I think there, if we sort of come back to culture in a bit as well, it's about I've seen a couple of like nice online conversations about sort of experience versus junior talent. And I think that that's an interesting point that like part of like a culture, important part of culture is also like how do you foster that that like uh, like junior developers are learning from the more experienced people and uh, and so forth and i think that like that's that sort of then flows into the feature development that you have have the right people with the right skills and right knowledge making the right things that's it everybody 2021 has been a great year for gaming and i'm really looking forward to 2022 and all the exciting things that are gonna be coming up. And I hope to see you out there at some of the conferences that are coming up. So, Happy New Year, everybody. Take care. See ya.